You are listening to the Heavenly Chi Podcast, Episode 21. Today our guest is Dr. Jimmy Wollumbin, and we're discussing the four directions and the five mythological animals. Hey everybody, I'm Fee Gitchum. And I'm Claire Pyers. Today our guest is Dr. Jimmy Wollumbin. Hi, Dr. Jimmy. Hi, guys. It's great to have you on the show. Dr. Jimmy runs a traditional medicine clinic in Ukiah in northern New South Wales of Australia. Dr. Jimmy has a decade and a half of clinical experience and combines Chinese medicine with Ayurveda, Tibetan and Persian medicines. Jimmy combines his deep knowledge of holistic medicine with a passion for social causes and world health. He founded the One Health Organization in 2005 and has since steered it to become the largest holistic and integrative healthcare NGO in the world having distributed roughly nine metric tons of medicine to hundreds of thousands of disadvantaged individuals across the globe. Today we are discussing some ancient cosmology with Dr. Jimmy on the four directions and the five mythological animals. You can find Dr. Jimmy on Facebook and follow his informative and often humorous daily posts. You can also find the One Health Organization website if you'd like to know more about that. The Heavenly Chi podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment and professional development. Show notes and continuing professional development resources are found at www.heavenlychipodcast.com. You can add Heavenly Chi podcast to your favorite RSS feed, iTunes or Stitcher. You can also follow us on Facebook. All links are in the show notes. We hope you enjoy today's show. Hey everybody and welcome Dr. Jimmy. Hi guys, it's great to be here. Yeah, so um, I'm really excited about this discussion. We have many things that we could have chatted with Dr. Jimmy about, but we've settled on this topic of the ancient mythopoetic cosmology that has led into the Chinese medicine that we're familiar with today. So on that, Dr. Jimmy's going to discuss with us some of the fascinating bits and pieces of info to do with the four directions and how that relates to the five mythological animals. So is there anywhere that you want to start with that, Jimmy? Yeah, I guess I'd like to just start with a like a brief intro to the subject, and that is that in the same way that the churches in Europe were built on top of pagan stones and sacred sites, and that church symbols and festivals were often built up upon previous pagan symbols. We see that symbols are living things and throughout history they accrue and they evolve and they develop throughout time. And so what we've received in Chinese medicine in the form of the five elements is something that has all these ancestors, all these different incarnations. And when we look at the older versions of it, then it helps us understand the modern meanings of them in a new and fresh way. And so that's why I think it's really important to have a look at where the five phases have come from, where they started, and how that gives us a, a deeper insight into them today. Mm. And so when you were studying all these different types of traditional medicine, did you start with Chinese medicine and, and Chinese ancient history? Actually, my first degree was in Eastern philosophy. So I did that at the ANU, and I first encountered these ideas and some of these ideas about symbols through studying Eastern philosophy and religion at that point. But it was from there that I went on to TCM. And then after I did my internship in Beijing, I went and did an exchange in an Ayurvedic hospital. 
and that was my introduction to Ayurveda. And, um, and from there, I've been going back, you know, every couple of years over the last 12, 13 years. And included in that has been some trips to the Tibetan Medical Institute in Dharamshala, which is kind of halfway point between Chinese medicine and Ayurvedic medicine yeah, in Tibet. And so I've been looking at these different symbols and these different ways of approaching vitalistic medicine that all have a lot in common at the base. Wow. And do you find that they are clinically relevant for you as well to know about these symbols? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, the symbols that we're talking about today, certainly they help. Uh, I find them very helpful from a psychological perspective. I'm not sure that it's going to influence somebody's herbal medicine composition or their point selection or their pulse diagnosis. But I think that a lot of doctors of Chinese medicine have a, a relatively poorly developed understanding of the elements themselves, even though they have a deep understanding of the organs and all of the rest of these things in Chinese medicine. I'm really interested in getting more connection in this mythopoetic information with the clinical applications because even though I've been very interested in the ancient history and had some very passionate lecturers on the ancient Chinese history, I'm not sure it really comes into my conscious awareness while I'm doing treatments in a clinically relevant way. Yeah, I reckon this will somehow. Mm. I mean, a psychological in a psychological way, but as I said, it won't change formula composition. It's not about should we use you know yang tonics or yin tonics because of the white tiger of the West, but it changes our understanding of what is metal about. And if we understand what metal is about, then we can understand what that phase of someone's life is about. And when they're in a metal phase or if they're going through grief or they're sort of a metal type, you know, then we get a new depth to our understanding of, of what that means. Mm, interesting. And have you studied the classical five-element acupuncture as well? Um, as in the five-phase school? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I have. It's not very classical, though. It's really a 20th century. I'm not a practitioner of that school. But I did a, um, an apprenticeship with a practitioner in Sydney a decade or so ago, and I got the manual off them. But um, that's, I mean, that's a whole other discussion in a way. But, yes, I have. I've read the textbooks on it, and I've, it's helped inform my sense of what the elements mean, you know, from their perspective. Mm. Okay. Well, shall we get on with these five magical, mythological, divine, double lucky yeah. dragon, tiger, turtles? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not quite sure what to call them. Um, the you can call them by the directions, like as in the four directions or the four animals. Yeah, mm-hmm. I guess. Mm-hmm. And when did these arise? What era are we time traveling back to? Shall I give you the yeah. feel or not? Sure. We are recording. Yeah. This is all okay. So the five elements as an idea is something that comes across in all these different cultures in the agricultural period, and they're sort of abstract in a way, elements, but before you get the agricultural revolution, then hunter-gatherer folk and like human beings for 100,000 years or more, they use different sorts of symbols and elements, and they use things like animals really strongly. In this is in Australia, in Native America, and certainly in China as well. And the other main thing that was like an archetype for them were the directions, so the north, south, the east, and the west. And so this is where the five elements first started, is with these four directions and the fifth one in the centre and the four mythical animals 
that were associated with those directions. And it's from there that Chinese medicine evolved and abstracted them into the elements. Mm, okay. So we're talking about the back around the dates that I'm aware of would be, you know, around 2800 BC. Something like that. I think it goes pre to the prehistorical record is yeah. that when we look at hunter-gatherer folk from around, all around the world, we see that they've got, they've had symbols like this, you know, like for, you know, 15,000 years or as long as we can imagine, probably. And so in Chinese culture, it just goes back before you've got, I think, you've, it goes back before we've got records. Yeah. Okay. And so were these, were these models developed as a way for people to understand their environment, to understand weather patterns, to understand disease? Like how did that actually come about? Um, I, I don't think it was used as, um, as medicine, or at least maybe not as we understand it, perhaps shamanic medicine. But the, the, the concept of a sacred compass, which is something that, that the, 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 the Sir Xiang is also a part of in China, that goes through Native American and other cultures is, is one of these things that, um, you know, sanctifies the world quite strongly where we say, you know, you, you look to the north and you see a particular kind of phenomena taking place that is different to the east and south and the west. And so then it, it informed ritual and it formed mythology very strongly. And so it did all this before it was then evolved into a model that could be very practically utilized in medicine. Well, because really, I mean, medicine's a very practical pursuit. Like, it's all about problem solving with respect to people. It's, there's a lot more structure and a lot more, I guess, intellectualization of the concepts that's required. So it makes sense that there was a lot, um, a much longer history predating its use in medicine. Yeah, and we had to co-opt it to make it more practical in medicine as well, because as everyone that studied Chinese medicine knows that the older arrangement of the five elements is a cosmological arrangement. It has earth at the center. Um, and it's not the wuxing that we currently understand, um, that we currently utilize. And so that was how it had been for thousands of years where earth is at the middle uh, and the other ones come out from it. Um, but for medicine, for it to be able to have explanatory power and predictive power in medicine, then they had to rearrange that and put it in a, a, a different um, a different sequence. And then I think also just give give uh, um, a different symbol to it so that we, it could be worked with inside the human body. It would be a very shamanic medicine. It would be a different medicine than Chinese medicine that we have today if we were diagnosing someone, taking their pulse and saying, hmm, you have stagnant as you are dragon of the east, Chi. <laughs> we could say that. It's, the same, it's kind of almost the same thing, but it would feel very different and it would give rise to a very different medical culture. Mm. And that's, that's liberty stagnation, is it not? Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. <laughs> See, in, in China and in Ayurveda, as well as in like, Hippocrates, one of the things that marks these vitalistic traditions is that they move away from religion. They move away from shamanic healing, which was their origins. They all had their origins there. And so I think something so deeply shamanic as the four directions and these four mythical animals had to be moved on and placed with something kind of more abstract, which is like, you know, the, the wuxing, the five elements. Mm. The best way to get a good sense of them, though, is to start to talk about each one of them. And then it starts to emerge, I feel like, how this happened and how it was built up and how this change took place. Okay, well, let's do that. Which, right. which one are we starting with? Well, maybe we can start with metal, like the metal, water, wood, fire, earth sequence is a good way. Okay. To go 
Is that the, so, the white tiger of the West? That's right. And so this is this is where for us we have we have metal, and it's just this um, this unusual one to Chinese medicine. But it's in, with the the Sirxiang, then the metal is the direction of the West, and wherever you are in the world, whichever culture you are, when you look to the West, the West is the direction where the sun sets. And so as you look to that, then the sun is, is going down and your vision goes down and as the light fades, then we see the dying of the day almost and the sun goes down into the underworld in this way. And it's very much the similar thing to our, our familiar associations like with autumn. Um, and so hunter-gatherers um, in, in China in, in the shamanic period, then an image for this is um, with the white tiger because the white tiger is a bringer of death. You know, the predator is something that ends things. And we would be familiar with the idea that um, in the Neijing they say that autumn is killing qi. It's sharp, retracting and finishing. And that's a good description of, of white tiger qi as well, right? Mm. You can feel that that the descend, as the leaves die in autumn and they drop down to the ground, so the sun dies into the west and the day dies into the west. And they're all mythically or mythopoetically killed by this white tiger. And so we have these associations of metal being associated with weeping or the smell being rotting, you know. Our, our strong association of how we understand metal in Chinese medicine is really through the season, which is autumn. And autumn is, is just the, the, is the west writ, the direction of the west writ large, in a way. It's that same bit, is the, the death of summer, is autumn, is that ending period as it goes down. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah. yeah. I'm also thinking just of images of how a tiger, uh, also ends as a predator, which is through the contraction of the claws. Yeah. Uh, and the, you know, obviously you're taking a big bite with your, jaw and your teeth is also a contracting direction yeah i think of the white tiger as having like claws and teeth made of metal in a way you know and that's how it links that that together and the the spirit in the body that we know that's associated with this is the pole and um and this is obviously the corporeal spirit and and in the Taoist text they always say that whilst the hun loves life the po loves death and seeks death. And so it's this sort of separating, rarefying, ending, autumnal, western, sunset, white tiger kind of process inside the body as well. So how do we apply this clinically? How do we? Well, yeah. these, I feel like then when we're starting to look at a deeper understanding of what the elements are, because... When we learn the elements, we learn them in Chinese medicine of saying, you know, autumn, you know, it is associated with, with this particular flavor, with this particular orifice, with, you know, like these particular organs. And we don't seem to get a, necessarily, we're not guaranteed of a deep understanding of its essence, of its heart or its soul. And when we start to dive into the images, into this murky realm of stories and myths and mythical animals, then we start to get a deeper sense of of what that symbol is about. And if we have that deep sense of an autumnal process, a metal process, if somebody is in a metal phase of their life 
or they have a condition that is not just of the lung or the large intestine, but strong, strongly metal light, then we see, wow, this is, this is one of those mythic processes where we descend into the underworld, like the sun that goes down, or like Persephone in the Western stories, that goes deep down into that Hadean realm of the unconscious. And it's a kind of dying, but like metal is an alchemical symbol as well, it takes us down to our essence. And so the symbol of metal is sort of like a mine shaft with the ideogram with these two little dots that symbolize gold at the bottom. And it gives us this sense of something precious, something deep down, deep down a dark path. And this is before they had mines in China, the, the ideogram came, of something that's really precious inside us. And it's only through these autumnal processes, these metal processes, these processes where we die to our older self, that we discover that that essence that's inside there, that we go down. And I think if we understand this in the symbol of what these stories tell us, that it may look like a white tiger, it may look like a predator, it may look terrifying, but I feel like the white tiger energy is something that that doesn't grieve for the falling of dead leaves, that doesn't doesn't grieve for autumn's arrival in our life and understands that it's a part of the process. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So if we understand this as practitioners, if we understand the deeper teachings, the the Taoist origins of this, then I think it very much flows through our clinical practice, not in terms of the selection of herbs that we would make, but in terms of the ways in which we can also guide our patients with words through difficult processes in life because there's incredible richness and wisdom inside here. And it's not just clinical. And so there's clinical application. But the, the path of the clinician is not just clinical. That's all, that's, it's, that's too cold. We're physicians and we're doctors and we have a role to, to heal, to make whole. And that is not done just through needles and hurt. Mm. It's done, it's done through our connection, right? With our patient. Absolutely. So where do we go after we've visited by the white tiger? Do, they, do we then go to the black turtle of the north? Well, yeah, we can go to water. And so water is, you know, it's one of these things that someone from the West, like from a Western tradition would think, ah, uh, uh, water, it's about, it's about flow or it's about wetness or something like this. But, um, someone versed in Chinese medicine has different associations because of the kidney connection. But it's interesting to, to see how that came about. And so the direction of the north, in China, this is different for us antipodians down south, but in China, as you go north, then the nights get longer and the days get shorter and it gets colder and the food gets more scarce and you're heading in the direction of winter with every step that you take as you go to the north, right? And at some point you come to winter solstice and you're there and, you know, there's just a blanket of snow around and the sap has gone down into the roots of the trees and you're huddled inside a cave. And as you huddle inside that cave, then your own chi has gone deep down inside yourself and your own process, uh, rather than being out in the world, you're very much inside the interior of, of yourself. And it's, it's a process of conservation as well as introspection. Um, and so there's... A, an incredible inward journey that takes place here that is responsible for our longevity and our survival. And so the image that they chose for that 
again in the hunter-gatherer period um, with of a turtle because the turtle is so long-lived and it knows how to conserve its energy and it can pull its arms and legs inside its shell into its deep interior and preserve that, that essence in that way. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. And so is there a way for us in the Southern Hemisphere that this all works and we just swap north with south? That's right, yeah. So in, the, in Australia, as we go south, we head towards the winter solstice. We get colder and colder. You get less days. It gets, and it gets start at some point, it starts to get scary because, you know, it's dark and there's, there's not enough food and it's cold. And these are very much the, in the I Ching, the Khan or the symbol for water is, is associated with danger, really. That yang, yin, yang, those three lines like this. It's very much associated with danger. And so there's this sense of, of kind of fear as we're inside the cave, inside that process. Um, and, um, and then what we know that counters that is, is the will to live. And that's the jiu, obviously, in Chinese medicine. Mm-hmm. That, that, that deep will that's inside there, um, that counters that. I'm imagining myself as a little turtle plodding along through the snow, looking for something to eat. <laughs> Being, being a little bit frightened. I, I really like, I really like this approach. I've never, I was saying to, um, to you both before, I, I, I haven't come across this approach before and I'm, I'm feeling very delighted right now. I'm, I'm fascinated to hear how the story unfolds with more animals. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it, I mean, it, this stuff, it does connect with our classics. You know, like, um, in the Sue Wen that it says something to the effect of in winter all is hidden. This is the season of retirement into the depths of one's being because it's cold outside and it's necessary not to disperse the vital yang chi. And so there's this advice about, about, about winter, right? And so then we've got, then we've got this sense of the kidneys, which are, you know, these deep roots of our own being. And so as we go into that cave in the winter and we go inside like the turtle that pulls its arms and legs in and we conserve that chi, then where we go down to is that Again, that mythic space of the kidneys, which is, which isn't the renal glands, right? <laughs> when we're talking about the kidneys in, in Chinese medicine, we're talking about something else. We're talking about something more complex than yeah. just purely, we're talking about renal, adrenal, pituitary, plus, all of those other things. Mm. And so this, that, this is that place. And interestingly, I've read as well that, um, in Ming men, in between the kidneys, there is visualized a turtle, actually, <laughs> as well. And so that connection goes, goes through. And so there's a, there's a, there's a turtle that exists somewhere in between, you know, the, the two kidneys in, in the center of our dantian. And, um, that turtle is kind of like inhaling kind of yuanji, you know, from the cosmos and exhaling it out into our body. You'll see these images on some Taoist art, and I guess the version that we've got of Chinese medicine is a post-communist version as well. So some of these bits have been extra sort of sanitized and cleaned up. The images, mm. but we still have that the kidney chi is responsible for inhalation. Yeah, that's right. And, and the lung chi exhales. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So I'm beginning to get a really nice picture of this, especially when people are going through phases in their life where things are kind of ending and they haven't got their new beginning yet, but initially in the ending they go through all of the letting go stuff in the, the West, the autumn, 
And then they get really to the point where they're at the end of their current cycle in some way. And that can be scary. Yeah. And, and then, well, I think it, it can be quite uncomfortable. I think even within the English language, you know, we have that saying, you know, the winter of our discontent. Well, I think that was the title of a Shakespearean play or something like that. I'm sure our listeners, some of our listeners will correct me on that. But yeah, that idea that winter and mm. it's not necessarily a pleasant time for it's, people. It can be a very hard time, isn't it? That, that builds fortitude though mm. and that, that builds the jerk or the will in this way. Mm. And it, it, it very much connects us as well. The, the direction, the associations with the north in this one, the turtle, are, are really to, to our roots, not just our roots in terms of the roots of our being and deep, deep inside us, but also our ancestral roots that we're looking back to along our lineage. You know, this inherited chi, you know, we have those associations in Chinese medicine, but it's also where our, where eldership comes from. It comes from the winter because the winter is that phase of life. It's our elders that are in the winter of life and the newborn children that are in the, you know, the spring of life in a way. Mm-hmm. And so the north and the black turtle of the north is also this sacred direction that connects us to the past and ancestral lineages. Mm-hmm. With our jing chi. That's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And tradition as well. I have very strong associations with this direction tradition. Mm-hmm. I'm quite familiar with the Central American, the Mayan medicine similarities with Chinese medicine and their five directions as well. And the north there also is a lot to do with that ancestral wisdom. And the the wisdom is that you carry not just, you know, how good is your jing chi and your longevity, but that, that kind of innate wisdom that you bring with you, which may come from your, the lessons learnt by your ancestors. Yeah. That's right, and this, this phase is one where we we dig down deep and inside the cave as well. You would have sat around and listened to the stories of, of your elders as well, and there's an, an acknowledgement with a turtle, which is an old creature. It's long-lived, and it's not just valuable because it teaches us how to live a long life, you know, in some hedonistic manner, mm. but having lived a long life, it's a receptacle of wisdom. And so that means that in these times, in these winters of our discontent, when, when we send our energy and our life and we go inside our cave and we stop in the, you know, the outside world for a, for a period of time, we dig down deep into our roots, that this is a place where wisdom is found as well, is that we confront fear, you know, because it's just like the fear of the waters, you know, like what is inside as we go into that deep water of our own unconscious and these watery realms that have been described by Western psychotherapists. And it, you know, there's all sorts of things down there. There's sort of like sharks and <laughs> and strange creatures. Um, and it can be a, a time of fear, you know. Um, but if we find the will, then inside that, then we'll also find that there's wisdom. I'm just remembering I actually was looking after some turtles that were hibernating while I was studying Chinese med. And then one day they came out of hibernation at the end of this winter and they were in this pond in the backyard and I kind of rushed over in a way and I was ready there to attend to this turtle as it awoke with with you know almost like the mindset of kind of like hey good morning do you need anything do you want some breakfast you know and and just the way the turtle just was so slow and wise and peaceful and it took about a minute to do its first breathing in through its mouth because they breathe through their like their anus while they hibernate 
which I believe is something else the ancients observed to understand the relationship between the the metal and the water. And I just got this really wise elder energy from this turtle and I felt like such a um, hasty spring chicken, you know, <laughs> like such a hasty young person in its presence That's while this happened. In the moment, isn't it? That we're not, uh, we're sort of constantly, we're chasing the endless summer, you know, mm. and we... We idealize all that's new and innovative and young, you know, and to be old is to be sort of a has-been. But um, Chinese culture was very much looking back towards tradition in that way, and that's why they haven't lost their tradition. They're really honored. So I think there's just so much. We could speak for a long time as traditional medicine practitioners about what we learn from, you know, the black turtle of the north yeah. and how that that is a phase of life and that's an energy and that's an aspect of ourselves as we're all just burning through our adrenaline, our adrenal energy and our gene, you know, that we're just spending it day in, day out in the West, really, mostly the pace of life. Then what can we learn from this culture that, that really upheld the value of that winter cave? And so what happens next? So the next thing that is that, and the wisdom, one of the parts of the wisdom is, is that, you know, winter won't last forever. And eventually out of that winter then, and which is the sort of, the, you know, the midnight, you know, in a day cycle, then finally when we look to the east, wherever we are on the globe, at some point we look to the east and we see that the dark night of the soul starts to lighten and that the sun starts to rise in the east. And as it does, every time any one of us has witnessed the sunrise, you feel this, you feel this rising of hope, this rising of inspiration. And as the sun rises and your, your gaze lifts with the sun, then your spirit sort of rises as well. And there's something, there's something really magical about it. You know, it's, it's new life and hope and beginnings and possibilities and it always feels mystical, the dawn. And so the sacred east was given this magical, mythical being, which is the blue-green dragon of the East. And this we know in Chinese medicine is the domain of the liver. And the liver is really, you know, that which lives in where, in, in, in English. And in German it's the same, Leber. It's to live, basically. It's this source of new life. And so what we did in Chinese medicine is overlaid on top of that rather than we could have picked sunrise as a symbol and we could have just been talking about sunrise chi rather than wood chi. Or we could have just spoken about it as blue-green dragon chi, you know, but that would have would have kept us in a slightly more shamanic framework. Instead, we speak about wood chi and we chose wood because not for wood itself. It's more like shooting bamboo chi, the new green bud chi. So... It's counterintuitive for people who are starting, but if you would look around a wooden house and say, oh, does this represent the wood element? We'd say, no, that represents the earth, earth element. You know, wood itself is not wood chi. What's wood is that, again, the, the bamboo that's shooting up out of, through the winter snows as it starts again, that vital new life that lives and that rises inside us. Mm. And what are, what are some of the other Shen aspects of the Azure Dragon of the East? Well, in us, obviously, it's, it's the hun or the dreaming soul. And it's also this, it's this part of us that loves life that, you know, shines in our eyes during the day and during the night, you know, retreats back into the liver. And as long as we've got enough yin and blood, 
uses that as a springboard to sort of gently just go flying through the astral like like a blue green dragon. And in the same way, like when our hun is 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 firmly settled inside us and we're connected to it, then it gives us that vision. It's the dreaming soul. It gives us this vision of who we are and the life that we should lead and lead and where we, where we're going. Um, so the Confucians likened it to a, a general in charge of an army, you know, deliver in that way because it gives the big, the big picture and the big strategy. And when we're connected to it, we're hopeful. But when we're, when we're not connected to it or we're not listening to it, then at first we feel frustrated and then we feel resentful and then we get angry and then we get, get total rage. And then after that, we get this apathetic depression. You know, or this dark night of the soul, this liver depression. And you can see that that, that stagnant liver chi moves through all of those phases. And when we, when we can't see hope, when we can't see, when we can't look to the east, and we can't see the new dawn, that is where we're disconnected from our hun. When we're disconnected from the realization that there is a magical blue-green dragon in life. <laughs> and every day it rises in the east. And it gives us this new hope. I see a lot of relevance in this one in people who haven't really followed their dreams or their passions in life, you know, and they, they need to get that going again because it's, it is like we'd say in English, you know, a small part of people gradually dies and until it's a big part of them that has that kind of stagnation and that resignation. Yeah, it's important that we, that we listen to our hun mm. <laughs> and that we follow what it whispers to us. You know, our dreams, through our dreams and through our daydreams and just through those yearnings of our soul, you know, that we listen to that because it guides us forth on the magical and keeps life magical and enchanted as well. And it doesn't always, it's not necessarily uh, rational, right? It's not, just, but it's, it's those whisperings of something magical, you know, and it's, um, it's, again, it's easy for us to get disconnected from in the 21st century. And where do we go from there? From there, well, following spring is that the full blossoming of summer. And the summer in the northern hemisphere comes from the south. And so to imagine this, then you can imagine our ancestors who had just been sitting in, in their caves during the winter and they'd had not enough food and they'd had, you know, the days had been really, really short and the nights had been really, really long. There wasn't even enough firewood. And then as they have traveled, to the south. If they would say this is too much and they start to walk to the south and they would see that it gets warmer and that there's more sun and because there's more sun there's more warmth and the associations with that uh, are fire and fire itself has this sense of transforming like transforming the seasons, transforming the winter, transforming the snow into into water and because it's because it's so transformative then it has this deep association with life and spirit, and then anything that's associated with spirit in for hunter gatherers, because the spirit flies, was often had something to do with wings, and so a bird was chosen as a symbol of the south, and it was the vermilion bird in China, and this is kind of like a phoenix-like character, so the phoenix of the south, the vermilion bird of the south, and yeah. it's this incredibly magical, transformative, rising from the ashes of the death of winter kind of symbol that's there. Well, the dragon and the phoenix are quite often paired together in a lot of um, in a lot of Chinese, well, in many different contexts, and that's been the case for a long time, hasn't it? 
That's right. And so technically the vermilion bird is not a, a, a phoenix. It's a phoenix-like symbol, but the vermilion bird is depicted differently. And so on academic kind of purity there, it's different to the phoenix that you see in that uh, fanglong embrace on, on, on those symbols. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's symbolically very similar. And um, vermilion, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a colour that we don't hear much of in the, in, the, in the West anymore, but it's a very rich red, and it's actually the colour of, um, of cinnabar. And so cinnabar is something we've all heard of in Chinese medicine because the cinnabar fields, you know, the dantian, and cinnabar is mercurial sulphide. And so it's that alchemical union of mercury and sulphur, of yin and yang, of, of, of opposites. And alchemists in, in Europe or India or China were all working with those same things, mercury and sulfur, and combining them. And so vermilion is that union of those into something quite quite transformative. The, and it was seen to be the elixir of life, you know, the combination of those two things. So after someone has been through the end of a, one of their cycles in life and done the letting go and gone through the fear and then the new hope rises and they start navigating their new cycle and and mapping that out and heading towards those dreams and passions and then they're in the the fire element the red vermilion bird of the south what um psychological process are they going through there well at at that point the the associations you know as with the with the the associations with summer, you know, they're of, um, they're of abundance. It's joy. It's the time, uh, even today when we have festivals, you, you know, you go out and you go camping and you listen to music and you celebrate, you eat more, there's more food, it's warmer, the days are longer, uh, you have love affairs, you know, it's that time of life. It's, it's the opposite of the winter of our discontent. <laughs> um, and so it's a joyous and wonderful period of life. And if we've been caught too long, you know, if we stayed too long in our cave, then, you know, and this happens. There's people that, that get hurt and then they stay in, a, in an autumnal process and they're constantly hiding from that white tiger of the West, you know, or they're just locked away in their cave and you can see that, especially following a, a difficult relationship breakup. And then you'll see that person sort of come out and, you know, they'll, they'll come out and they'll go through the dream. And you know, go out, and then the healing that happens in this phase when when the red vermilion bird comes and and lands in the bird cage of our of our rib cage in our heart, and we have it there fluttering in our heart, and you see just how transformative, how magical is is joy and love in our life, and we see that each of these directions brings a different gift to us, and joy and love and laughter uh, are um, are not shallow things. They're profoundly transformative and, and they all have their place. So much of our modern life places, I think, higher value and, you know, there's a lot more focus and attention that's spent towards, you know, the, the attainment of, um, of happiness and the attainment of, you know, feelings of um, achievement and so forth. And, and I think that, you know, I really, um, you know, the way you were saying that if someone spent too long in their cave or they spent too long in the autumn, um, the autumn phase of their life, can you speak a little bit about your observations of people spending too much time trying to chase this endless summer? 
Yeah, really good question. Is I've seen this a lot um, because uh, I I spent a good chunk of my twenties traveling, and um, and I was going around to you know traditional medicine places, but on that journey, and I was on the road for three years straight. Then um, I saw a lot of people that were just doing the circuits of um, the festival scene. And they were going from, you know, Bali and the trans festivals there over to Goa and India and then up to Ibiza and just constantly chasing it like this. And by constantly chasing the external summer, they were also constantly trying to avoid the, the life processes that are more, um, uh, retracting. You know, the, that they were trying to avoid the autumn and the winter. But when they do that, you see that they've been profoundly limited, that there's a lack of depth. That when we allow life to kill us, when we allow that white tiger of the West to come and compassionately sink its metal teeth into our throat and die to ourselves, then we go deep, 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 deep down. But it's that process of rejuvenation. And so then when we emerge again, then we, we emerge renewed and transformed. And that's what these symbols are all about, is that it, you have to go through these phases. It's just like the, the, the seasons of life, in the same way that every year we go through all of these seasons. That in our life, we need to go through these seasons, and they happen differently to each of us at different times. It's not an age thing so much, it's a psychological thing, that we have to embrace this process of being taken deep, deep down within ourselves, spend time in that cave, touching that, those ancestral sort of wisdoms out, and letting our sap deep, dig into our roots, is that that's where that's where wisdom lies in those processes. And so I see the party goers that avoid that and that just want to get a quick buck always and then go to the next party. That after many years of that, one, they're physically exhausted, but two, they're not psychologically renewed and there's a lack of depth. Mm. And so there's the there's the fifth animal. That's right. The fifth element. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And so having, and it's good that this is at the end because having done the rounds again and again and again and again, you know, through life, at some point, then, you know, there's some sort of weariness that comes potentially <laughs> of just being taken on a roller coaster of, at each of these, in each of these phases and completely losing ourselves, um, to them. And so then what emerges then is, the acknowledgement that all this flux, all this change, it all revolves around a still point. And that, that still point is the axis mundi, you know, that, that mythical totem pole around which all of change in the universe takes place. And it was traditionally often associated with a mountain, you know, a sacred mountain that people would climb. And that could be Mount Fuji or it could be Mount Shastra. For me, it's, it's my local mountain, Mount Warning. And that's, that's the still point at the center of it all. And so that mountain is at the center, and that's why Earth was placed originally at the center. And so the mythical being associated with this, this, this point of stillness within us is, was called the, the yellow dragon of the center. And this is, again, they've chosen a dragon again because it's something so magical. Uh, it was also associated with, with the emperor, you know, um, and the emperor would often wear a, uh, and it was reserved for him, like this particular golden yellow cloak, and he was seen also to be that, 
that central point around which all the change of the, the empire took place and he was unchanging and stood there. And so this is our foundation. This is that point at the middle. It's, uh, these, the Axis Mundi is also sometimes called the navel of the world. And so that brings us to our kind of spleen, umbilical connection that we have in Chinese medicine as well. And it was also the world tree. Uh, you've drizzled in the North mythology is another one of these symbols. You know, the hanged man is another one of these ones. Someone who's taken themselves to the central point and is there ceaseless, avoiding the ceaseless movement of the changes of, of, that go around through that yin and yang cycle. And I think this is something that the Buddha would really relate to. <laughs> There's a world weariness in the Buddha's, Buddha's philosophy. Mm, well, I think definitely the number of times that we go around the wheel and the directions we start to really understand that importance of cultivating that inner stillness, that access mm. point, and where that that's always there, whether we're in the autumn or the summer or the spring, and that gives us that kind of equanimity and balance. A beautiful symbol of that is like the gyroscope. That, you know, those spinning tops that can hold on your hand, even if you push them out to the side in a way. And they used to use those in aeroplanes so that they could navigate and see which way was up and down because it would stay stable in the midst of motion. And it's there, a, a gyroscope is using the power of gravity and the Earth's own stillness in the middle of its movement. And so this is a beautiful symbol in a way of what Earth should be for us is that it, it provides that groundedness, you know, that sense, that senseness within ourselves as we move through all of those seasons. It doesn't stop us from moving through them, but it allows us to stay grounded in the midst, in, in the midst of change. And so we'll recall that in the cosmological diagrams of the, of the Wuxing, then Earth was not only at the center, but it was often placed in between every single other compass point. So you'd have Earth at the center, then you'd have fire in the north, then you'd have Earth in between, and then you'd have wood in the east, and then you'd have Earth, and then you'd have water. And so it's that sense of that, what links the transformation, what holds it together, what allows us to navigate through it. I also learned this in relation to Shirliao and diet therapy, that when you're going through the change of the seasons to eat the earth foods, yeah, so it's not just the fifth season or the humid late summer, it's also the place where... You know, when you go through those first few weeks where the white tiger of the West comes and starts to clamp down on summer, um, yeah. that, that that's an earth moment. Exactly. All of those points of transformation is that we ground ourselves, that we, that we come in that moment of change, that we come back to the center, that we nourish the center with those root vegetables or whatever the things are that, you, that mm. you're using. But yeah. mythopoetically, that we can, we can maintain that not that we hop off the wheel necessarily and just stand in the middle, but we find the still point, the centeredness that allows us to move through those cycles as well. Mm-hmm. That's the mountain, that's, that's the earth. You know, the mountain that's there, that, you know, the, the stars just go around and around and around and the seasons go around and around. The mountain stays still. And so the earth is that symbol of that. And this is, this is perhaps one of the strong elements of the strong, the strong feelings that underpins the element of earth in Chinese culture. Great. <laughs> that was great. It's so interesting. Thank you. This has been such a great episode. Um, it's so nice just to hear such a refreshing 
perspective and approach to um, understanding the five, the five, well, the Wuxing. Yeah. Thank you, Jimmy, Dr. Jimmy. It's been an absolute pleasure. Okay. Well, if anyone would like to contribute to that conversation, you can comment on our Facebook page below this post and let us know perhaps if these um, four directions and the five animals are something that you can also apply clinically. Um, Please do contribute. And we'll see you next time. Thank you, everybody. Bye for now.